to another episode of Public Problems. Here again, I'm with a number of Bush School students um, that took a course of mine in the fall of 2018, and they had the opportunity to pick a public problem or a public policy area that was important to them or that they were interested in and spend half the semester delving into it and all the nuts and bolts. And so before we get to their topic, I'd like to give them an opportunity to introduce themselves. Hello, my name is JC Jones. Hi, I'm Morgan Seacat. Hi, I'm Michael McGough. Hi, I'm Austin Reed. And I'm Blaine Council. All right. So uh, let me start by saying thank you for your work. Um, I'm really interested and looking forward to talking through this with you, but thanks for taking the time, and thanks for also agreeing to have the conversation with me. I think uh, it's fun to get the work out you've done and it be informative for other people. So you, got, you had the opportunity to pick any public problem, and the title of your report is Inequality of Funding in Public K-12 through Education. So you deem this to be very important to you, one that you wanted to spend half the semester tackling. So why did you go with K-12 through funding? So kind of the biggest reason that we decided to go with uh, inequality of funding in public education for K-12 through uh, students is because of the fact that majority of us have more or less a vested interest in this particular topic. The reason why I say vested interest is because Various members of our group have parents who are teachers, administrators, they're on the school board, things of that nature, as well as each and every individual within the community that has a child or pays property taxes has a vested interest as well. So we feel like it was a large community problem that needed to be addressed and potentially have uh, solutions proposed for it. Yeah, and did any of you actually experience K-12 through public education? I was a public education kid. Anyone else? I think all of us. All of you were. So yeah. you got to experience some of this firsthand and probably got to talk a little bit about how your own experiences through your K-12 were different as well. Absolutely. Okay, thanks for that. What um, I think it would be nice to kind of give a broad overview of what you were trying to do with this report. We'll, we'll go into the details, and I want to get to the history of funding and how it's changed over time or not changed over time. But what was the broad issue here that you were trying to tackle and just a, a basic overview of some of the questions you ended up researching? Yeah, so I think the biggest problem with this topic is that not a lot of people are familiar with the way that public education is funded. I think a lot of people just kind of understand, oh, the state gets involved in it, state legislatures, that's uh, you know, like our, our, our budget, and then kind of outside of that, pretty ignorant about what's going on. Mm -hmm. So that's the goal of this project was just to make sure people understood what that process looks like, uh, maybe some uh, equity issues that are within that, uh, certain groups being represented over others, and the consequences that brings on uh, society overall, because everybody benefits from everybody getting an education. Mm -hmm. um, so, Positive externality. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> buzzwords. Yeah, buzzwords, yeah. Um, so, and this has been a hot topic in Texas as well recently. I had some students cover uh, education funding specifically within Texas. So maybe we, as we go through, I hope we can talk, touch on that at least a little bit because um, I know this is kind of a political hot potato in Texas right now. Um, so uh, I think you're right. I think a lot of people don't really understand how public education is financed. And so I want to get to how that's done today uh, across the country, at least in the U.S., but maybe start with a little bit of historical development and what this has looked like over time, and particularly on this dimension of inequality, because I think there's a pretty clear case that there's some equity concerns here in the way that 
K through 12 education is funded. So can someone give me a little bit of a historical background on this? Of course, um, like you mentioned, there's kind of two different ways to even start looking at the history and development of this problem. Um, some people prioritize everyone having the same opportunities and other ones think, obviously, if you have access to education, that's important, but not everyone necessarily needs the same opportunities. So, um, but our project more looks about trying to prioritize everyone having the same opportunities. So when I first started looking into history, um, you can actually go all the way back to Native Americans and how actually some, like for example, the Charter of 1650 um, for the University of Harvard, it actually pledged, pledged to educate the English and Indian youth, but we all kind of know um, education was really to try to civilize them. So that was like one of the first um, examples of inequality in education. Um, in our history, and then also the uh, oppression of African Americans is definitely often highlighted um, with this problem. During like, 17, the 1700s, 1800s, it was illegal to teach African Americans. You had anti-literacy laws to impose this. People could be killed um, or fined for being caught teaching um, an African American. And definitely after the Civil War, there was more uh, a push for more education rights. And this actually also benefited poor whites because definitely you had um, African-Americans and poor whites, both of them weren't really getting that education. It was mostly mainly wealthy um, white uh, children that were able to get those rights. Uh, definitely had organizations like the KKK trying to hurt these advancements. And definitely after the reconstructions, reconstruction period, Blacks started losing the political offices that they had gained for that time being. So it made it even harder to ad advocate to, um, their educational rights and policies they would want. And definitely after the reconstruction period, that's when clear disparities between white education and black education really was brought to the forefront. We're talking a little bit maybe about the Jim Crow era now. Mm -hmm. okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. So even back in history, you had Plessy versus Fer Ferguson when these clear disparities were seen, but the government wasn't doing anything to stop it. And instead they were actually encouraging this, this separate but equal, but we all know it wasn't really equal at all. And you, like about 60 years later, later you had um, Brown v. Board of Education, which tried to kind of correct this segregation. Um, but even with, with that, um, you have things like white flight. So once, Black children could go to these schools. Um, a lot of these schools didn't even really pay attention to the law, first of all. Mm -hmm. But then also you had, as black children were coming into these schools, white children were leaving because their parents and their communities didn't want to associate with the black students that were coming in. Um, you had the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1965 uh, passed by Johnson that actually tried to kind of close this gap between poor and rich students. And then you, the updated version of this is actually, was actually the No Child Left Behind um, Act. But as you can tell, this is very political and people don't really like, really like federal intervention in education. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a whole other topic to talk about <laughs> the, the problems with that one, but I'll keep it moving. There's a lot of history <laughs> with, this, with this stuff. Uh -huh. um, and definitely you had other people like the NAACP, um, they tried to institute busing of white 
students into inner city schools and black students into um, more suburban schools, but that was also ruled unconstitutional. Um, and then even seen with President Reagan, he passed a lot of tax and budget cutting measures. Um, and I believe that when he was in office, he actually helped cut the, the federal funding for education pretty much in half. So all these things are just developing in hurting minority and underperforming schools even more because they already didn't have the resources. Um, Michael will touch more about the like the actual formula mm -hmm. um, of education funding, but I'll just say like where people are living and why white flight had such an impact was just because um, the funding, most of the funding for education comes from property taxes. So obviously you live in a nicer area, you're able, you pay more property taxes, more taxes go to funding your schools and more resor resources um, to that. So basically most of the history, you kind of, it all is tied in with, obviously you have to look up, look at the oppression of minorities and America itself is kind of very individual. Individualistic. Thank you there for, we that. Go. <laughs> <laughs> for that word. And um, that can be seen with them not really wanting the federal government in their education um, but it obviously poses the question that, you know, some governments were allowing for inequality. So someone had to step in uh, to try to fix that. And I'm not sure if you are going to ask separately the consequences or do you want me to go straight into that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, let's let's come back to that. There's okay. a couple of pieces of that that I think are uh, interesting, but there are a couple of things I've learned in over the past few years about the actual access question uh, and the inequalities and the quality that stem in part from funding, but stem in part from just kind of racism. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I learned uh, not too long ago, I was actually from a Malcolm Gladwell podcast, but that is in the wake of Brown v. Board, when schools started integrating, one of the things that happened is the black schools were the ones that were closed, the black teachers, the black administrators, then uh, weren't integrated along with the students. And so one of the big things that happened as part of integration was not, was uh, the students were being integrated in some, in some cases and in some ways, although that was ignored to your point, but the, the actual school cultures and the administrators and the professionals were not integrated along with the students to any meaningful degree, which, uh, which I think is just interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, another piece of this before we jump into the funding, and then I want to make sure we get on to the funding and then come back to some of the consequences. Mm -hmm. um, last uh, season of the this podcast, a group of students did uh, the school-to-prison pipeline, and it was um, troubling, I guess, to say the least. We did a whole independent study on this to see the current disparities across states and within communities now and the ways in which these laws are just not enforced. And so there's this clear push from um, schools in poorer areas and, and towards minority students to give them uh, more expulsions, more infractions, and then essentially push them into the school-to-prison pipeline so that then there's someone else's problem. And this has become part of a, an exacerbated problem when we tie so much of funding to um, – test results because what administrators think they're doing is they're pushing out the low performing students by targeting them based on other kind of uh, factors and kind of pushing them into the juvenile system. 
because there's all kinds of like ethical concerns and just straight up racism and immorality associated with the inequality in education. And, to, and I think you really nailed the uh, nailed it on the head that the balancing factors in the U.S. in particular are also the federalism that we have, and that states are really states really want to hold on to their right to do um, to provide good educate to provide education, and it answers this question of federal government overreach that sort of uh, come up in uh, during Reconstruction is what role should the federal government play? while trying to respect states' rights, but saying, like, you still have an obligation to your citizens as part of being part of the United States to have quality education and access and fair access across your state. So this is, uh, before we get to the funding part, I mean, I think this really gets at some of the, the stakeholders and some of the challenges for decreasing inequalities in funding, for sure. Let's talk about funding, though. So one of the things we mentioned early is that it's, probably not clear to most people how K through 12 is funded and it varies across states for sure. But could someone kind of lay out the broad picture of where the money's coming from for K through 12 education? Yeah. So, um, the primary source of all, uh, funding for, um, public education comes from local property taxes. And this is just across every state in the country. And so the process is that these municipalities, you know, they collect the property taxes they launch them into the state government uh, where they have like their funding formula. Uh, the formula funding has this weird quasi questionable, like uh, not a lot of people know what it does, but it, it takes into account all these variables and then produces a certain amount based off of demographics from students and districts and then uh, redistributes the money back to school districts. And so I guess to talk a little bit about the formula, it, it's primarily filled with three parts. There's base costs, formula factors, and then adequacy uh, goals. And so the base cost is just how much money does uh, each school district need to make sure that students are achieving the state standards or uh, any federal mandates. Um, and so each state calculates that differently. Each district calculates that differently, differently but just about every single formula has that. Um, I think there's about 36 states that have that, as of right now, a base cost inside of their, um, yeah, 36 states inside of their formula. And then so formula factors that are variables that just influence the amount of money that goes back to districts. It's like adjusting the base by some other important variables, right? Yeah, so uh, 30 states use at least one formula factor inside of their um, inside of their formula. And so those are kind of broken down into two types of factors. or student factors, which analyze like student demographics. So students that are pregnant or parenting, students that have disabilities are going to need more money for schooling. Uh, students that are picking up English as like a second or third language need more funding. Uh, so those variables are accounted for inside the, the state's formula. And then there's district factors, uh, which look at district demographics. And I mean, no district is the same. Uh, so they look at like the cost of living within that area. One thing I found surprising was that Virginia they use five district factors, and one of their factors is retail sales inside the area, and they use that as a way of determining how much money should be allocated to their school districts, uh, and then also local property tax effort, and then district size. Uh, so those are the most common that are used inside of the formula, but, and then the third part is adequacy goals, and so there's about a dozen states that use adequacy goals inside of their, um, their formula, and it's primarily, they set a goal about we recognize that there's some inequality in our education 
And so we need to spend X amount of dollars by, let's say, 2020 to make sure that we can achieve a certain percentage uh, decrease in inequality. And so they'll insert a plan into their formula to compensate for that need to overcome inequality. But like I said, there's over a, just over a dozen that have that, but only two states have actually implemented it into their formula. Uh, so, so other, yeah. So I don't know if that's telling yeah. our constituents, hey, look, we're fixing it. Yeah. But yeah. So I think it's New Jersey and Massachusetts, which I think we found are some of the highest in the country in terms of overall quality of K through 12 education. But I guess in terms of stakeholders also, so that's primarily at the state and local level. The state also collects other taxes, contributes those towards the state's budget apportionment for education. Uh, but then also the federal government is a big player in all of this. Uh, Ten cents of every dollar that's spent on public education in the United States, K through 12 in particular, comes from the federal government. Um, and so it's interesting to see it's 10 percent now. As JC was talking about, uh, President Reagan wanted to bring it down to about 6 7%, but it fluctuates depending on the administration in and around 10. Uh, and then also stakeholders, I think most people just kind of recognize that students and teachers are uh, mm -hmm. very big stakeholders in all of this. I mean, of course, students, uh, if they go to a school that has less funding, it's not going to be as high of quality of an education. Uh, teachers, they're going to get lower salaries. Uh, they're not going to get as many resources to help them in the classroom. And that just adds stress to the job. Uh, and then I think, I don't know, maybe this sounds cheesy, but the overall stakeholder for education is society. Um, everybody benefits from people getting an education. Um, I mean, there's studies that show negative correlations between education and um, like crime rates. Mm -hmm. So communities have better education, crime rates go down. Uh, poverty also goes down, and so uh, that's just one thing that like I think people don't necessarily think about. They just kind of push it off to the side, but uh, that's really all that we have in is, is terms of what goes into a formula. So you mentioned that 10%, roughly 10% of every dollar comes from the federal government, mm -hmm. and I assume there's a decent amount of differences across the states, but with the remaining 90%, is most of that coming from the property taxes at the local level? Is most of that coming from the state? Uh, where is the bulk of the remaining 90% coming from? Uh, so the bulk of it comes from local property taxes. And what's interesting is that there's national trends across 48 out of 50 states where state governments are decreasing the amount of money that they're allocating towards public education in the state. And so that puts a lot more stress on local communities and the residents because those communities have to increase their property taxes to compensate for the lack of funding that they get from the state. So something that's kind of interesting about that that we kind of addressed too is the fact, so we did testimonials to cover the state of Texas and we did uh, kind of not, not necessarily case studies, but we did overviews of particular states to figure out how they performed and why they performed the way that they did educationally. And the states that we chose for that were California, Texas, and New Jersey. And one of the things that we did when we were referring to Texas is we didn't necessarily do a state overview, but what we did is we did testimonials among uh, individuals within the state. Because like we mentioned before, each one of us has a certain part that uh, our family members play or friends that play, as well as ourselves have vested interest in the public education sector. And one thing that came up when I was doing a little bit of research was the fact that uh, during the testimonial, I spoke to... Um, a teacher in the area and one of the things that she said was a big issue is that these lower socioeconomic areas actually are taking in fewer dollars in ta 
through taxes because of the fact that these individuals earn less. Therefore, being in rural communities, they provide less taxes and the school districts have less tax dollars. And like you just mentioned, the state of the, the various states are providing fewer dollars as well uh, in revenue to actually support these state educational agencies as well as supporting these local school districts. So since the local school districts have fewer dollars coming in, they're not able to necessarily recruit as uh, high quality as teachers, and they're providing fewer resources for each one of these teachers. Yeah, I think this is the central part of, of the funding issues, and we'll see kind of what you found. We'll talk through maybe your states a little bit more and the methodology you had there. I, I like your approach. But this idea that uh, we want to fund education primarily with local dollars and primarily with local property tax dollars is um, is just a recipe for inequality by definition, right? Wealthy districts with higher-end homes have more resources based on that baseline of the higher-end homes than smaller, poorer areas that have fewer homes and that are cheaper. And so then it should be no surprise to anyone that if that's the funding mechanism, then the the districts with the uh, wealthier resources are going to have better schools. And part of this, to your point, is that part of that formula gives them more resources to hire better teachers. Not only are they areas where a lot of teachers want to live just in terms of larger numbers of people, um, they pay more. And so to get the better talent, the better teachers, they respond to pay incentives. They end up at these higher, higher performing districts that also just happen to be the ones that are the wealthy districts because those happen to be the ones with the resources. And this really stems out of a history of believing that education should be done at the local level, but it has these disastrous consequences for the quality within a state, across a community, much less across an entire country like the U.S. So tell me a little bit more. I'd like to hear a little bit more about the analysis that you did when you you talked to some people in Texas. You compared this to California and New Jersey. So what were some of the factors there that you noticed as part of your analysis? So as you were saying, the inequality on a district level, we kind of took that to a more state level um, and looked at a state that performs exceedingly well in what we found were called uh, equity factors and a state that performs very low, um, so New Jersey and California. And then we also analyzed Texas because that's a state that we've all been in and gone through the education system. Um, And so some of the factors that we looked into were um, we went through a paper and they discussed uh, funding equality. And so funding distribution, the effort of the state, uh, the funding level from district to district, and then how this funding covered the students within that district. Um, whether they were English language learners, if they were receiving free or reduced lunch, um, if they had transportation from further away, different factors that lead the district to have to spend more on um, each student. And you could see just a huge gap in just how much each state spends on each student. So New Jersey spends around 17000 per student where you look at California and Texas and they spend right around $8,000 on every student. Um, so that was just like our first <laughs> first kind of step into it. That there's it, an yeah. issue. And then that 48 of them are declining the amount they're spending on education is just mind-blowing to me. Yeah. 
But anyways, continue. Sorry. Oh, no, you're good. <laughs> um, so I personally looked into the New Jersey education system. And um, as I mentioned, they spend $17,000 on their students. Um, but when you start looking further into their statistics, they score very well in their equity factors. They made A's. Um, they have ranked like top in all of these factors. But then you look at their English language learner and their um, students who are receiving free and reduced lunch. And it's very low percentages compared to other states that have high immigration or immigrants. Um, and so it shows that even though they're spending more and scoring better, they're not, they don't have a very diverse student population. Mm -hmm. So are they having an easier job of being equal? Mm -hmm. I mean, the extra resources maybe help as well, but the difference in the types of students in a more homogenous, wealthier place as opposed to the variants you have in Texas and California. I mean, California is just all over the map in terms of wealth and poverty, and so is Texas, right? You have some very high, uh, high wealth areas, and then you have a lot, a lot, a lot of poor areas as well. Yeah. Another one of the state overviews we did was uh, California, and California has experienced considerable inequalities for a number of years. As far as rankings go, uh, they don't fare so well. Um, <laughs> according to the four measures of Does it feel good to say that as a Texan? Does it feel good to say that as a Texan? <laughs> no, because we scored about the same. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Couldn't resist. Uh, as far as funding distribution goes, they scored a C, um, funding effort, an F. Uh, they're ranked number 36 in funding level and number 34 in coverage. And um, while they've initiated efforts to address these uh, inequalities, they're still plagued by a number of dispositions, um, you know, such as the student-teacher ratio, um, high proportions of ELL or English language learner students, and especially lack of funding in low-income areas. Um, so um, a lot of the uh, inequalities, of course, uh, mirrors a nationwide trend and then has demographic correlations. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, uh, this has grown most divisive in areas that are minority and low income predominant. Um, and it's also important to note that California's youth are more diverse than the rest of the nation, and they're only growing more diverse. Um, and fun fact, even though California was uh, the first to lost segregation of schools on a racial basis with uh, Mendez versus Westminster, which was nine years or so before uh, Brown versus Board, uh, they're now the worst in the nation for the segregation of Hispanic students and the third worst in the nation for the segregation of African-American students. Um, just a little bit more statistics. Um, California is also home to the largest number of uh, low-income students in the nation, and it boasts the highest number of English language learners, um, with over one in five students being labeled ELL. So Very different from the New Jersey case, right? That's yes, extremely, very. Where it's only 4.9% yeah, I mean, these all represent huge obstacles for the state of California. And um, ELL, low-income and foster youth, are um, what are known as high-need students, and they are the fastest-growing group among U.S. children today. But in 2013, uh, to address these inequalities, California implemented um, what is known as the Local Control for Funding Formula, or LCFF, which aimed to revolutionize funding for these school districts uh, through increased autonomy and um, a number of complex budget alterations. Um, part of this was allocating a certain amount of funds to school districts uh, based on their number of high-need students. 
And uh, ultimately, while this was a step in the right direction, um, it may even aim to worsen the inequalities in certain areas. Um, this is because school districts are exercising too much discretion through the, uh, the law's um, flexibility of interpretation. Um, you know, for instance, they didn't receive clear views on how these um, LCFF grants should be spent or how they would even reach their target populations. Um, many districts are not accounting for the entirety of the funds or they're lumping all the, uh, all the funds in the same pool and using them inappropriately. Um, you know, some have complied in hiring, in hiring uh, bilingual counselors, summer school teachers, um, things like this, um, but others are not and as a result are even facing lawsuits. And uh, when it comes to accountability in this situation, a lot of it has fallen down to the community. I think that piece is, this is something I, I learned a little bit about when I was doing some of the school to prison pipeline is just the amount of local school districts across the country that are just out of compliance with exactly. basic things they're supposed to be in compliance with. Exactly. And to your point, it turns out that the only way to really hold them accountable is from people in the local community in general. There's not a lot of external sources that really, when it comes down to it, puts pressure on it. And so to get changes in the communities, often it has to come from the actual local community and people in that community, uh, which seems which is kind of mind-blowing to me. I, I would have just assumed states were better at holding their school districts accountable, but it doesn't seem to be the case. And as we'll discuss later, it's hard to hold a school accountable when you don't know how the funding is going into them and where it's being spent. So you don't most people within the district don't know where this money is going, so it's hard to say here's how it should be done. Yeah, this is uh, this has come up in class a little bit, but trying to think of the importance of accountability and then reasons why these things might be diluted, right? Because to your point, I mean, part of it is these adjustments, right? And then hopefully the formulas are starting with some kind of quality base and adjusting them based by needs. Sometimes maybe it's a little needlessly complicated. And maybe at least you see it play out in Texas, right? The local governments are pointing at the state and saying, "Hey, you're cutting our funding when we raise the uh, when we raise our property taxes." And the state's saying, "No, no, the formula that's not what that formula is doing, <laughs> right?" And so, um, and it's hard for the general population to know who's being honest in that case um, because of the complexity of the funding formulas. So we talked a little bit more in depth about California and New Jersey. Is there anything else additional from the Texas case that we should also highlight as part of your analysis? So something that we kind of addressed as far as our testimonials uh, in regards to the Texas cases was that um, Morgan's mom is actually on the school board, and so she did a testimonial with her. And the, something that interesting that came up was the fact that individuals in those communities don't necessarily want to report um, their free and reduced lunch programs because of the fact that they're afraid that they will be discriminated against or necessarily called out because of the fact that there's a potential higher population of, say, uh, illegal immigrants or things of that nature. But the problem is, is that really hurts the school districts because the students are actually there, but they're not receiving, the school district itself's not receiving funding for that student because of the fact that they're afraid to actually report their, uh, their population there in the, 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 uh, yeah, their income, and because of the potential retaliation that they're afraid of because they don't know what will happen. And then another thing that also came up in, a, in another school district uh, in a different part of the state was the fact that, like I mentioned earlier, that lower socioeconomic areas receive less funding through taxes because of the fact that the individuals actually in that community don't get as much funding 
due to the fact that taxes are lower in those um, rural districts and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So therefore, they're also put at a disadvantage because the state isn't supporting them um, more and more as we go through and continue to move into modern day uh, education funding. So I think this is one of the biggest problems facing our country is how to get education right in a rapidly changing economy with new technological tools and new skills that are required and the importance of students and citizens to be able to adapt and also in an area of in an age of you know misinformation it's really important for citizens to have the ability to sort through uh information in a way that is quality and makes them good citizens so i think um this is kind of one of the defining uh challenges and what's really really frustrating about it is that we know that every dollar spent on education has a positive return so economists settled this a long time ago with all kinds of different uh tests that every dollar spent on education has positive externalities has positive benefits associated with it so the return you get on every societal dollar you put into education is more than that dollar that you get out and then the fact that 48 out of 50 states are are decreasing their budgets in an age when we're already having educational challenges is essentially unforgivable. Um, not to even mention the inequality piece, which I want to come back to. It just seems wrong on some real important level. Um, I don't know what to do about that, but let's talk about some of the potential solutions for inequality. So I know that after you go through your cases here, you lay out some of the different attempts to tackle funding, uh, funding inequality. So what have we? What else have we tried to do other than these? We talked a little bit about adequacy gaps a little bit. Maybe that could help with some of it. But what other strategies are being used to tackle uh, inequality, funding inequality? Well, <clears throat> I wrote over uh, an attempt in the state of Texas to tackle inequality, uh, which is known as the Recapture Robin Hood. And um, you know, in the state of Texas, a decent proportion of school funding still comes from property taxes. Um, which, of course, can intrinsically result in inequalities. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, Texas recognized this, and in 1993, they passed what is known as the Recapture Robin Hood Law. And essentially what this does is redistribute uh, property tax funds um, from school districts who make more from property taxes. And, uh, and uh, you know, while supporters have vouched for its usefulness, um, it, in the recent years, it's had no shortage of critics um, you know, as the state continues to cut funding levels and as property taxes continue to rise, uh, more and more schools are meeting this threshold um, to be viewed as wealthy school districts in the eyes of the state. And many are beginning to make their first payments, like Houston ISD, I know, recently made their first payment. And the most uh, wealthiest, the largest school districts, um, you know, like Plano and Austin, they're paying hundreds of millions a year um, to this uh, state. And uh, they haven't been too happy because, um, you know, accusations against the state include that um, these funds are using to expand their general budget rather than going directly to, uh, you know, where they're supposed to. Um, you can also talk to students from districts like that. And the people that are just barely making the threshold are having to pay into this fund and falling below the fr threshold. So, and then you have these huge school districts that are paying and still <laughs> way beyond the threshold. So it just leads to another gap in inequality. Um, we also just briefly touched on school choice because that's kind of been in a, a proposal, um, especially among, among this administration. 
Um, so you have your charter schools and voucher programs, but the opponents of this, they see this as taking away money from pu public education and then um, parents are able, they say, to have the freedom to choose better schools for their students. Um, that's one of the things um, research shows that this doesn't really help poor people actually because these schools that they would use the voucher program for either doesn't fully cover tuition or doesn't cover all the books or uniform requirements, just other stuff like that. So when a low income person or family gets a voucher and then they look at the better schools and realize they still can't afford it. So it's kind of, it doesn't help the people that it's supposed to help. Mm -hmm. um, but definitely also another problem with it is that some of this money people are saying it's going to private schools that talk about religion, have it in their curriculum, but our government's supposed to have separation of church and state, which is just a whole other problem also. Um, but definitely we need to talk about these things because it's in the conversation. But kind of my conclusion was since only a small percentage of students are actually able to utilize these vouchers and go to charter or private schools, um, I hope that politicians and just stakeholders shift the conversation from focusing on this small percentage to actually get back of get back to all the students that are still stuck in these underperforming public education schools. So um, what were your what are our solutions? Uh, so I think the, the biggest solution that can have the greatest impact is the way that state legislatures approach the formula and the factors that are used in evaluating funding. So a lot of the data that's used by states is out of date. Um, they don't update it frequently enough to accurately represent the state. Um, and then on top of it also, it's just inherently a, a political process because it's made by the state legislature. Um, so there are problems where state legislators are fighting for formula factors that would benefit their constituency over other parts of the state. Um, and so ultimately, a solution would be to make it less political, uh, maybe take it, <laughs> taking that away from the state legislator and putting it in like an independent, uh, like the Texas Education Agency or Department of Education in New Jersey. Uh, that way there isn't as much political consequence uh, for people maybe that have like a higher ranking inside the state legislator are going to have more pull and be able to get their factors in there and help their community. Uh, so that's one thing. And then also just making sure that the data is up to date. They're not running on information from 10 years ago. Uh, and then from that, they can choose like the best formula factors that can be used by that state to actually represent the people that are getting an education. Any others? Another thing that we kind of addressed was the fact that uh, we wanted to address teacher recruitment and retention of teachers. Uh, some of the big like t talking points we had as far as like teacher retention and teacher recruitment was the fact that providing additional necessary like monetary resources uh, to these teachers for recruiting higher quality teachers through providing maybe a higher wage, higher initial wages um, through various grants and other resources. Um, and we also looked at potentially providing more incentives in regards to like more better health care programs or better retirement programs to actually keep teachers in the school um, teaching program because for instance, one of the programs we looked at was Teach for America, which is a nonprofit organization that goes in and actually helps provide teachers to uh, a lot of these underprivileged school districts and things of that nature. 
However, one of the big problems is that these teachers come in, they're there for a very short amount of time, and there's a high turnover rate because they want to go into more lucrative uh, future career fields once they've got a little bit of experience underneath their belt, and that's not helping students because studies show that if teachers stick around for more, to, more than three to five years, it actually improves test scores significantly for these students if we can actually keep teachers in that particular school district and continue to increase not only the students' education, but also increase the experience of the teachers themselves because they're better equipped to not only teach in the classroom, but they're better equipped to relate to the students and things of that nature. Yeah, the, re the retaining and the, reten the recruiting, I'll get it right, the recruiting and the retention of quality uh, teachers, I think, is a real issue, to your point, in these communities um, for some of the reasons we talked about earlier. And so some, some type of incentive structures for that, I think, would be quite helpful. Just wanted to add, add to that real fast. Um, like we talked about, there are problems with Teach for America, and a lot of the money coming from these Harvard or Columbia grads not being able to relate to the students in the classroom. And I was thinking about an interesting perspective. Maybe if they put more money into recruiting teachers from the community so you don't have that problem um, of them not being able to relate, obviously you're going to have to train them, but you're training these other people too, but that takes away one of the disadvantages of them not being able to relate, and it could create jobs in the community too if you recruited teachers um, from where they're from. Yeah, this is not something that I had considered before, but giving resources in the community to hire and train people in those communities seems like it does have some advantages over someone from outside of the community coming in for a couple of years and then, and then leaving. It's a really good idea. The last solution we kind of talked about was issue saliency, um, everyone knowing about how, and we kind of talked about it twofold, knowing about the formula, which Michael will cover, and then just informing parents how to report their income so that their school district gets the money they need without fear of immigration status or being looked down upon because they are asking for free or reduced lunch. So having translators or counselors that can sit down with these parents that don't understand the paperwork they're having to fill out and just simply walking them through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so that's what uh, I feel like I touched on this earlier. Not a lot of people are familiar with the funding process. The formula is just kind of this overhanging cloud where all the money comes in, does a few tricks, and then comes back out. Um, does a little dance. Yeah, and so that's what I'm sure I can ask my parents, and they're not entirely sure what that process looks like. Um, Funny enough, I went through public K through 12 education in both California and Texas, uh, so two of the lower ones. Really? But yeah, so just making you still made it to graduate school. That's yeah. all that matters. Uh, but yeah, so just making sure that people are informed when they're voting about, you know, I'm putting in this person into office, but maybe they don't have these positive outlooks on like funding for education. Uh, maybe they don't see education funding as important as it really should be. Uh, so making sure people realize that. There is no bad thing about people getting an education. Uh, and so just campaigns, people just marketing the benefits of education. So uh, they can hold people accountable. Yeah, hold people accountable um, and then just have an idea about what's going on. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's frustrating, I think, because the, the trend is um, to less funding all over the place, to your point. Not even to mention the inequality part. Um and uh, it's hard to picture or imagine a drastic change. This has been going on since at least the 80s, um, for sure. But it, we're seeing some of the disastrous consequences from it. I think we're living them. 
And so hopefully, um, hopefully uh, some of that can be tied back to uh, the importance of education. But education is a pretty tricky one politically because you have to pay for it now for the benefits later. And mm-hmm. that's not really something we're very keen on doing uh, yeah. right now, I think. And so and it probably will require raises in taxes to offset other things, um, or at least as something that needs to be on the table. Um, but it becomes really tricky at the state level. We were talking about the Robinhood funding. Even when people are willing to talk about paying more, it's not always clear if it's going to where it's supposed to be going. This is also played out with like lotteries in some states where all the money from the lottery was supposed to go by statute to education and then there are these kind of adjustments uh, and it happens to be in other places and not show up. Um, maybe we should just let children vote. Um, <laughs> maybe that would help. Um, anything um, in conclusion that we haven't talked on already that you think is important for listeners to know about the the state of the inequality of uh, K through 12 funding for education, the overall quality of education, or um, ways in which uh, this might be improved from our current situation. Anything else? Do we do we do a good job of handling it all? I think we covered it. Yeah, y'all did a very nice job. Um, well, thank you again for the time today. Thanks for talking uh, and covering these issues with me, and uh, thanks for all your work. Thank you.